calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Flinor. And I am your host, Sarah Century. And we are here to talk once more to friend of the pod, Danny Lore. Welcome to the podcast and once again, Danny. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Excited to be here. Yes. Danny! Danny! <laughs> <laughs> I had to lean off the mic. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to not blow it up. <sighs> the crowd goes Yeah, wild. just doing a full-on Moana. <laughs> oh my god, the Moana. We were talking before the recording started about how it has been about a year since we talked last, and you have so many new projects and so many new things that are going on. So where can people find you and what do you have going oh on right boy. now? Uh, you can find me either mostly Twitter or on Instagram usually, although I need to update my Instagram more, which means I need to build more Gundams, over at Weredogs, <laughs> W-E-R-E. D-A-W-G-Z, because I have a brand to maintain, which I'm working on, and it's werewolves. <laughs> um, and right now, I've got a few things happening. I've got work over at DC and Marvel, you know, uh, just wrapping up uh, Champions over at Marvel. Just announced the day that we are recording this, my upcoming book uh, mm -hmm. at Vault, Lunar Room, which uh, I'm super happy about. It's the continuation of my, you know, werewolf brand. And then also, uh, yes, Transformers, Transformers, Transformers. Uh, upcoming. And then we got about a year or so off from it, but I've got a scholastic middle grade book called Kicks coming out as well. I'm doing a Stranger Things a book co-written by Greg Pak and illustrated by Valeria Favocia. Uh, if I've mispronounced your name, Valeria, I'm very sorry. I am so used to internet conversations with people now that I can't pronounce anything anymore. <laughs> Relatable. Sarah and I both mispronounce words, and then we'll have like a whole breakdown in an episode, and usually it gets cut out, but we'll be like, wait, is it this? No, wait, is it that? Like, I cannot say, you know, oh my God, I can't do it. I was going to Fabian Nicieza. I can't say that. I can't. I'm all Fabian Nicieza. And Sarah's like, who the fuck is that? And I'm like, oh shit. We are talking about the classic X Men writer. I've mispronounced Danny at least once today, so that's fine. <laughs> 
it just reminds me of my retail days where, you know, like I get halfway stuck between saying good night and have a good day. And what came out is good night, <laughs> which happened, unfortunately, more than once. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so, so excited to have you here today. Obviously, we adore you. But I really want to start with, I can't believe you got to write our, I mean, I can because you're amazing, but I'm very excited to hear about you getting to write our favorite British butthead, Constantine. That was so cool. I would love to hear about what it was like to write him. And tell us a little bit more about the Truth and Justice series, because I know it's a little bit different than the traditional straight Yes, blocking. so uh, the Truth and Justice series is an ongoing series with uh, various creative teams. They all kind of come out digitally first as 10-page chapters, but then when it switches to print, those all come out as one 30-page issue, which is really great because it is a longer format than you usually get in a single issue, but also like you're kind of pacing the story to have those almost cliffhanger chapter breaks as well. So like it's super fun. And it's kind of specifically uh, highlighted a lot of marginalized teams really uh, getting to write and draw who they want to in the DC universe and kind of tell standalone stories where you don't necessarily have to be heavily like involved in the backstory of all of these characters, right? Um, it's just been a really great showcase. And I was really fortunate enough that my editor over there was the same editor who did my digital Wonder Woman and Zatanna short and was basically like, cool, pitch us, you know, I think it actually started out as pitch us some like team ups. And then like a true nerd, I didn't realize that all of my team ups were with John. <laughs> so he, so he was like, yo, you just want to do like a John story. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing a pattern. Yo, you know, this character, give us like that dream, you know, short pitch. If like, you know, you got one up at bat. And so I was like, I wanted to do a story with him and Papa Midnight, you know, just of course. Yeah, there's so much history there. And they're so complex because they both mutually drive each other up the wall. They've they've been actual enemies. They've had to team up. And that's a kind of a great place to start. And essentially, the storyline involves a young kid named Alex with their own uh, supernatural power getting kind of stuck between the machinations of John and Papa Midnight and how it relates to an adventure that they had had previously, you know? And it was really kind of me playing with some of the things that I think are most important in, in John's legacy. One, how so much of his present is often him, his past biting him in the ass. <laughs> um, and, mm, mm. <laughs> and also about the people who get stuck in the middle with his stories. I think that there are often a lot of people who John is ostensibly making the right good choice, but he's not necessarily always making it for the right reasons. And that often leads to very unhelpful help, <laughs> you know, and him kind of being more full of himself than maybe someone who is trying to do the right thing should be. And that's kind of really why I wanted to tell that kind of story. Yeah, it's so, it's such a fun read. It's so exactly John and exactly Papa Midnight. You're like, this is them. This is them having one of their classic, uh, you know, bicker fests <laughs> where they're mm -hmm. like, this is going to be the time I kill you. No, this is going to be the time I kill you. And it's like, well, it's not going to be the time either of you kills each other, okay? <laughs> like, 
We know this. If you guys kill each other, you guys can't call each other. And you love this. <laughs> you love hate this. It's like your thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved so much the way John, and it's what he does that I think makes him so endearing as a reader. It's, I, mean, I think, is part of, we talked about this a little bit in the last time you were on the pod, which if you haven't listened to that episode, go check out episode 45, I Do Many Things. That was our first interview with Danny. And, and I remember talking about John in it, and part of the appeal, right, is the arrogance, is how charming he is, is how he is really good at magic. And that's also all those things are his downfall, just like you were saying. And what I loved about the way this story was framed is you let us have our little fantasy about John, right? That like, John's a good guy, right? <laughs> like he's trying to help this kid. Like he helped these people deal with this mirror. But then you do what's so important with John, which is, no, he's not. He's, he's not a good guy. He's good at magic. <laughs> and the thing is, it's not that he's a bad guy either, right? It's that he's a right. selfish yeah. person. And I think that that is what makes him a particularly good anti-hero, right? It's not that he's evil or bad. Like, there is a version of that guy who went down that path and was just, like, a monster, right? But I think mm-hmm. that what draws you in is the tragedy of sometimes he does actually want to do the right thing and he tries to do the right thing, but he's so absorbed in himself sometimes that it's difficult for him to, mm-hmm. to see it until it's too late. And then... Mm-hmm. On top of that, he lies to himself all the time, but he's at least honest enough to be like, I don't know if I would do it differently. Yes, yes. What I love about him too is his code is so clear, right? Like he thinks anything is justifiable. If it saves people from the darkness, for lack of a better term, or evil or, you know, goo (laughs) from breaking into our realm and destroying all reality, he's like, then it's fair game. And that is like, that's macabre. That's that's also a lot of sacrifices. And one of the things I love in, in so many of the comics, and I'm thinking right now of the Ming Doyle run, is that, you know, he's haunted by those things. Sometimes literally. And in this case, you know, as we see the visions of the mirror on the page, again, he's being literally haunted by what he's done. And it's great. It's just so fun. It's like, oh, John, you bastard. I knew you were going to make that choice, but I still hoped you wouldn't. And, like, he's one of those folk that, like, the most obvious comparison for me is, like, Cassidy and Preacher, where he goes Mm. and just is like, I'm going to betray you because that's who I am. You know, like, John is going to break your heart and you know it and he knows it. But there's always that moment where both you wish that he wouldn't and then he wishes that he was a better person, right? Like, I feel like if he didn't get to that almost point, he would be less enjoyable to read. Yes. Definitely. I think he would be by a pretty wide margin. And yeah, I think that there's times where people give us, you know, like the charming romantic John Constantine. And I love that that version of him coexists with jerk Constantine because you would have to be charmed by him, right? Like, I think that some people rely on that charm and that kind of I don't give a damn attitude. And that's why you get drawn to them. So I think that, yeah, being able to convey what draws people to that character while also being like, and... (laughs) Yeah, I think that, like, one of the things that makes John different than some other characters, although there are other great characters that also do this uh, in comics, is that you get this real sense of... So he does have almost the superhero mask, but what it is is charm, right? Like, there's always a part where 
you feel him putting on the mask of charm, right? And it's not that it's fake. It comes naturally to him. But there is a very different thing where it's like, I almost enjoy reading stories where like his charm wins the day rather than like his bastardness as like the version that he tells or the version that entranced you to do what he wanted versus the, you know, kind of the dirtier stories of this is how he actually got stuff done. And like part of what I wanted to do with, you know, me being like, I I love doing simple things in 30 pages is kind of doing that in a way, right? Oh, yeah, that comes through exactly. <laughs> you know, where where he's got the mask of the swagger and like this cocky charisma, but then it still all comes down to the thing he decided was worth doing is still so cold, right? Ugh. And that's the unmasking, right? And I think mm. almost all good stories are either about the moment that you realize what the charm was covering for, or it's about him fighting to get back that charm after having lost it. Like, I think that, like, that's the division between, like, the two different kinds of stories that John gets that work. Mm. Well, and I think equally as important to the story is Papa Midnight. And, yes. and sometimes the way Papa Midnight is treated in the comics is borderline racist, if not outright It's racist. a mess. It's a mess. And... Getting to write him for me was a little like when Vita and I got to write Mr. Big, you know, it's this character that means a lot to me that sometimes though representations of them, even like the original ones themselves are more painful now than they were when they were written, right? But I wanted to make sure that like Papa Midnight's culture, both mystically and not mystically, is really important. You know, like I reached in a little bit that I wanted to make sure that I was writing Papa Midnight as an immortal black man who lived in America and what that means. You know, like that's not like a thing I get into, but I sort of do because like that was the reason that I put him and John in a room of rich white folk who are giggling about magic, right? Like that's kind of my call to not only John's like kind of a uh, working class background, but also Papa Midnight having been an immortal black man and having seen so much of the worst of what America has to offer and what that look, what that room looks like to him and John, you know? And there's this level of they both don't have that much respect for that room, but John only sticks out in that room because he wants to, right? In those flashbacks. Papa Midnight doesn't have a choice as to whether or not he stands out. And so, like, that was kind of something that I was trying to bring to writing him. I think that that's a conversation, too, right, around, like, a lot of punk culture that John Constantine is part of, right? Yeah, you will get, like, people who consider that, like, oh, well, I dyed my hair and then, like, the cops beat me up or whatever. And then it's just like, yeah, but, like, you can dye your hair back. <laughs> like, you can always change it. So I feel like that's interesting to draw light to you in this, uh, in this comic. Yeah, but the thing is, I also, in 30 pages, I can only do so much, right? So it's a yeah. question <laughs> yeah. about how to put that in, you know, without it absorbing the story. And that's... That's different than I, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit when people are like concerned about stories being like preachy or whatever, because I often find mm -hmm. that that translates to if you didn't already agree with it, it's preachy. I actually don't necessarily mind a preachy story as long as it as long as it's like offering what was promised, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't have the space for that here. Right. I didn't have the space to do a long drawn out interrogation of that. 
So it was kind of finding subtle ways. Yeah, you're really good at kneeling characterization, though, because I was going to say the Wonder Woman Zatanna, too, is like a very short story, right? But so good and telling about both of those characters. Uh, thank you so much. That was so fun. It's a fun story. I love it. <laughs> I thought it was so good. It was one of those ones where I read it and I believe I read it a little time after it had come out. And I was just like, oh, yeah, like I forgot about this thing. And so I picked it up and read it and was just like, God, this is such a good, it's a good story. And it's a good showing of who they both are individually. Yeah, I that one was fun. One, because I never thought that even coming into the career and starting to talk to people at DC and Marvel, there's still a moment of, you want me to write Wonder Woman? Like, yeah. at all? Like, <laughs> What? You know, and it's unreal. And then, but then it was also getting to write the two of them. And in some ways, they're so similar, but so different, right? And I just wanted to have fun with them. So that became me going, let me make the story about fun and about yeah. self-care and about taking care of yourself. Um, it's very funny. I don't often, I am review averse. Like I'm one of those people. It's my anxiety. Mm -hmm. I try to avoid it. But one review that totally fair um, if it wasn't their bag, but it was uh, something that stayed with me was the conversation about whether Zatanna's mishearing was framed as like an intelligence thing. And it was very interesting because for me in that story, what happened is that Zatanna is so like Zatanna is similar to John in, in that like sometimes that they get wrapped up in their selves and their personal life, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, thinking about that like seven soldiers story from Grant Morrison. It's, oh, yeah. It's not that she's not a good or smart person. It's just sometimes when you are worn out, right, that she heard what she needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's what Diana realizes by the end, right? That it wasn't that Zatanna was being neglectful or or being an ass, but... That, that's what she needed so badly that she she saw Wonder Woman, who is one of those people who's a hero to heroes, right? Yeah. And she needed to hear Wonder Woman say to take a break. Now, whether or not I did that successfully, I think uh, does differ from one person to the other. So like, sure. I'm not even mentioning that review in a way of saying you're wrong or whatever, because I <laughs> sometimes that doesn't come across, you know. Mm -hmm. But like that was kind of the motivation for that story. Uh, was all of it came from the idea of both the moment of needing to hear that it's okay to take care of yourself really badly, uh, but also then the idea that, of course, Diana's the sort of person who looks at Las Vegas and only sees the people falling in love, you know? Mm -hmm. Only sees the people who are happy and have the best weekends of their lives, you know? <laughs> Not even in like a naive way, but just that she's like, under all of the nonsense, there's always going to be something good and lovely there. Yeah, I think that those are two characters that people really classically have struggled to be able to define. And that's why, for me, that story came across so well was because all of the individual ticks that they both have, I think, like, really came together in this way that worked and was just like, yeah, that's who they are. That's who each of them individually are. And you say that they're very different characters. And it's true, like they are, but I, I feel like they're, for the longest time, you know, a lot of writers would treat them kind of interchangeably as a lot of characters were, right? Part of it for me is that they have both have spent so much time in the spotlight, but they're both different. And, and I mean this uh, in the text, not so much as like characters. 
both are characters that are dark-haired, beautiful women who have magic-based backstories who spend a lot of time in the spotlight, right? And I think that it is very easy to conflate their two different types of spotlight. That Zatanna living both in the spotlight as a performer, but also in the shadow of her father, is a very, very different experience than having been a princess and having that kind of backstory, both in the stressors and in the privileges that come with both, right? And that there's this kind of thing, they're both superheroes, but Zatanna lives in a very different world, right? Their powers mean they, like, just on the sheer form of them having powers and Diana being part of this pantheon, but also Zatanna on the flip side having a power that allows her to just say things and make them real, right? Um, And how sometimes that causes Zatanna to have a distorted form of reality because she can distort reality, right? And I think that those are both really crucial to them. And that's also what makes Zatanna's occasional self-centeredness different from John's. John has a very uh, con man self-centeredness. Like, I'm going to get out of here, you know, like, you know, hell or high water. Uh, Zatanna's is, she is used to being that celebrity, right? Like, if she was created now, she would be someone who, who wasn't in, like, the famous kid of somebody who was mm-hmm. a very popular influencer, for example, right? Who has that kind of because the world has always interacted with her differently. She has difficulty remembering that context, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, she has lived so much less time than, than Diana, you know? Like, so I feel there's also like a where Diana's origin story starts also makes them, you know, so different, but have so many ways of connecting. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> I'm having a great time just listening to two of my favorite characters actually be understood by people because I feel like, yeah, you know, it's sometimes it can be rough to be a Wonder Woman fan. I'll say that. <laughs> but like, I think that there's, in the same way that I feel about like Batman detective comics, there is so much beautiful timelessness about Wonder mm-hmm. Woman stories that like, even if we were to go through a drought of like, Wonder Woman stories, right? There will always be more because there is always someone who saw her with the gauntlets for the first time and what it created in their minds. You know, what mattered. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world 
that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Everyone, Patreon is such an amazing platform. I like to subscribe to artists and support them and stuff, and often I get a bunch of free content. Guess what? We have a Patreon and we give a bunch of free content. You could go to our website, patreon.com slash bitches on comics, which once again you have to spell out B-I-T-C-E-N-O-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S. Yeah, SE is the one that can do that part. Because um, I did a lot of takes to learn it. You did, you did. I remember sitting with you. It was like watching somebody train for the Olympics. And <laughs> you've never gotten it wrong since. Like, you've never gotten it wrong since. So I, however, fucking lazy, just doing whatever I want in life. Um, <laughs> don't have it together. Can't say the name of the Patreon you're supposed to go to. But do wish you'd go. Check it out. <laughs> You can join us for as little as $2 a month, as much as money as you got in the bank every month. Like, don't, like, not take care of yourself, but oh yeah, we would take it. We love this podcast. We want to do it forever. Help us out. Support us. Again, we're at patreon.com slash bitchesoncomics. You have to spell it out because if you don't, it won't pull up. You can't, like, go to patreon.com and be like, I'm going to look for some bitches because we will not show up because we do content that involves F-bombs. We have our intoxicated comics where we enjoy some sweet refreshments, <laughs> did, and then talk about comics. So Definitely talk about weed. There's a reason. Yeah. It's a den of vice over here. <laughs> <laughs> I literally will listen to you talk about these characters for, you know, the rest of my life. But I wanted to switch tracks and talk a little bit about Champions because it's still ongoing and then also Transformers. So, yes. um Yes, so let's start with Champion. Let's talk about these wonderful, wonderful, silly children. Yes. Oh my goodness. They're such children. They're such teens, you know? I love them. I've adopted them all now. No one, yeah. if, if you're going to be mean to them, you have to go through me because I love them. They're so cute. But yeah, Champions has been like such wild fun. One, because Luciano is like the best co-creator. Mm. I've been fortunate enough to like pretty much love all the teams that I've worked with. But in particular, I owe so much of Champions to Luciano being so great at like bouncing ideas with, you know, like if I'm struggling, we've literally just, you know, gone back and forth for a bit. And every finished product is better than the script that I wrote, you know? And I think that that's always such a great thing because our collaboration works like that. You know, there's there's so much of that book that is Luciano and... Then also there's the way he draws uh, Viv, which is perfect. I know. Um, I love it so much. His Viv. I mean, I love all of those kids. The way that Luciano draws Viv is so perfect. And every page that he turns in with Viv in it, just I'm screaming. I'm just screaming every, every time. It's such an amazing team, too, that you're getting that you're working with. Yes. 
I mean, both like your creative team, but I also mean like the champions. Like the kids are so cool and interesting and they have such distinct personalities and their conflicts in inside of the group really feel real to what it's like being in a friend group, especially as a teen when you're like, oh, I'm impulsive and I did something that maybe I shouldn't have, but also I don't want to be sorry. I don't want to be sorry. I'm not sorry. And everyone's like, but yeah, you I mean, you should be sorry. Like you, you have to be sorry. <laughs> and also I feel like, especially as a teen, and this is not saying like both sides anything, right? Because we've we've all discussed and screw that, but it's very easy as a teen for everyone to have really good intentions when they when they screw up, right? That what they were trying to do, what they meant to do, was complicated by, you know, still figuring out who they are, by like just the elevated emotions, because as you're a teenager, even with superpowers, it's a stage in life where suddenly all the stakes in the world are like leveling up on you, right? So it was really important for me to, you know, like in, I think the third issue starts with Viv kind of being like, cool, you know, Sam was really wrong, but also Kamala was a little wrong too, you know, or like just them trying to understand each other, right? And because they didn't make decisions because they were bad people. They screwed up in the way they did because they're very good kids, you know? And so they were dealing with hurt and trauma, which was really important to me because they went through so much during Outlawed, you know? Like, I love that run, especially with Kamala, reading those parts and how even when it wasn't like horror, it was one of the scariest arcs I think I've read in a very long time. Like I've I've had full-blown like horror fear for these kids in that. And it was important for me to give them space to deal with it without trying to be, you know, a take two of that run. Right. The the stakes are really different in in this this run. And that is nice. It's a nice change of pace and it's nice to see them really dealing with their dynamics with one another. And and I just have to go back to Viv because I just love how you've written her and how even in her sort of synthesoid way of being so, she has like a really high level of emotional intelligence, you know? She's very astute and it's nice to see her in that space and to see her go from my guess to my friends is like, oh, are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's so cute. And that was really important for me because one of the things that is always true about Viv in any time we've seen her is her desire to learn, not just as like an academic level, but on an emotional level, even if she struggles to talk about those emotions, right? And she, trying to do good in Outlawed, had done something unforgivable, right? Like ratting on your friends in that way is is an unforgivable thing. But it's also a situation where, but what if she's trying to learn? And sometimes what is technically an unforgivable thing when you are a kid and when you are learning can become forgivable, if that makes sense. That like, she, I wanted to make sure you see her putting in the work. So one of the reasons that I very intentionally had her discussing being emotional in that way and being incredibly empathetic is I wanted to show that she is not just empathetic on her own, but she's also learning from the mistakes, right? She's only able to have that conversation about what Kamala and Sam are arguing about because of what she did in Outlaws, right? Is because she came to understand what was wrong with what she did and walking from that and how that changes her interactions. That's why, like, 
the ongoing conversation that she is and isn't having with uh, Riri is so important to me in that because obviously by being accused of being the one writing them out, Riri had the most fallout from that. But I think that Riri also can be mad, but is also the one best suited for understanding mistakes made because you have difficulty communicating with the others around you, which is one of the reasons I like writing that dynamic. And I got to say, like having them in an environment where they have to interact with people, maybe around our age, you know, certainly not their generation is so funny. (laughs) They're just like the olds. And you're like, oh my God, I'm an old. (laughs) I was literally like, look, if there's one thing I know about this age range from having to sit through this torturous, all of my fellow 30-year-olds getting angry about hair parts and gene cuts is that they will roast the shit out of us. (laughs) Like, if anything is true, it is that. And especially being like in my 30s and having watched fellow in their 30s people getting really sensitive about it made it like even kind of more fun to poke fun at all of us, you know, like because like, yeah, to them, we're old. We're twice their age. Get over it, you know, but like, like it's good that we're old to them. Like, yeah, that's fine. That's that's good. That's that's like appropriate like growth. That's when I was that uh-huh. age. I had teachers that were 30 and I was like, oh, that's, that's old, you know? And then right. you get older and then that part of your life is proportionally less and less. And so, you know, like, you're like, oh, the age I am now doesn't feel that old. And you're like, you're right. It's not old, but it is older than them. So like, that's going to be the interaction. Also, motherfuckers, I, I see you posting about how much your knees hurt. Like, I see it <laughs> and I feel it. And I am also in that experience but listen, the kids are right. We are old. <laughs> just, and that's just, okay. Just embrace it. Like, yeah, yes, it's, it's okay beautiful. to drag us for it. We were talking <laughs> to you about this because it's like, who else is going to drag us for like all of this stuff? We we're like children to everybody else. Like, you know, millennials are like on their way to 40. I'm on my way to 40. And like, we're still getting dragged as being like irresponsible children. So it's just like, I welcome our mean teen overlords. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's very funny to me where I've always kind of had a perspective of it's cool if like aesthetically and generationally, there are just things we don't get about each other. Like, it's fine. It's okay that I style my hair differently from someone who's from a different generation than me because I'm not trying, like, there was a thread at one point about how 30-year-olds and like teens use like a certain emoji differently. Oh my God, and yes. <laughs> I remember it being phrased as like, like that people were arguing like, oh, for, you know, like the 30-year-olds are like out of touch and not cool. And I'm like, no, they're just communicating with other 30-year-olds. Which is good and healthy and normal. Yeah, I'm like, I don't, I like, and I feel to a certain extent that like, I apply that logic when I'm writing teenagers, that it's okay that like to learn to empathize with teenage readers and teenage characters without thinking that they have to be the same, right? Mm. Is that I think that sometimes when we are dealing with character voices, if you're writing someone older than you, you're trying to make them sound more like you. If you're writing someone younger than you, you accidentally make them sound more like you. And it's just like, it's okay that we just all kind of sound different, (laughs) you know? Um, That we care about different 
aspects of things because that's that's true even within generations, you know? You know, down to caring whether or not someone else cares about your hair part. Like, you know, um, which I just use because it's really funny to keep saying. Oh my God, it's so funny. It's, it's like, uh, <laughs> what? Like, we're mad that they don't like the way you part your hair? Like, uh, 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 what? <laughs> it's also for me that, like, at a very young age, I read articles and quotes that were talking about the ages of most writers writing their, like, big pieces, right? And saw how they were older than, like, because we hear the stories about, like, the younger success stories, right? But a lot of writers that we know and love over the decades, like, were in their 30s or later, right? And it's just because you're in a different, you know, like, I'm in a different place than I was at 20. There are some people who just own creativity and at 20. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here like, thank God. No one gave me a chance at 21 because that was some bad writing. <laughs> uh, yep, the bad writing. And then also you just, yeah, it's like, thank God this wasn't like when my big break happened, right? Yeah. Because it's like people who have longer careers and certainly I've noticed with myself, it's like there's all of these levels to it, right? Where it's just like you go, I'm here and now I'm moving to this next creative project and now I'm going to do a little bit more ambitious work, you know? And so there's kind of that growing process that I think is for me, invaluable because, yeah, I was writing like personal zines that were just about ex-girlfriends like whenever I was 21. And I'm like, while I'm glad I did that, I am also glad that that is not what I am known for. <laughs> like, Also, it's just learning and growing on every project is fun for me. That's just something that I try every single project that I'm like, what do I get out of this, right? Like for me, it's either like, I want to take another approach to it from what I've normally done, you know, even if I have to kind of like make the learning process myself, which I have done before, gone like, cool, this isn't necessarily, you know, this is really just me, you know, going, oh my gosh, this is a bucket list character. I've got to work on this. And then I go, how do I make this a learning process, you know? And Champions was interesting because there are so many <laughs> learning processes there. It was my first team book, you know? Um, it was my first book in in years writing just like straight up teenagers you know like since I was younger you know like as a cast you know as opposed to you know like one of many characters um it was doing a full comic heist from beginning to end in a certain way right like which is a very complicated mode of storytelling it's it's some of my favorite stuff but being able to make the twists land and then also being funny like leverage is a hard show to like put together and I was trying to do it with superpowers <laughs> um so I just like learning and learning to write young people in that world was so fun for me you know like it was hard it's probably one of the hardest writing projects I've done to date thank you so much my editor Alana for um helping me because like I said one of the hardest ones so far but it was cool. It was fun. Plus, I got to apply all the excessive YouTubing of um, multi-level marketing people that I had been watching <laughs> at the time. Which was, uh, I got really into anti-MLM YouTube uh, during the course of the pandemic, particularly like CC Suarez and uh, Deanna Mims. Love it. In particular. And so I was watching a lot of their videos when I was coming up with this and also with a lot of the uh, dialogue uh, from Miriam, the main villain, um, about social media and about being performative and kind of the entire concept of it where the entire core of 
rocks on selling a lifestyle instead of something real came from a lot of, of that stuff that I was looking at at the time. And I feel like it is also such a great story to tell with teens who understand, <laughs> like, they understand that it's bullshit, you know? Even when teens are, quote, buying into it and buying the merch or the swag or whatever, they, they know they're being pandered to. They know that you're selling a lifestyle, I think almost more so than a lot of adults, because the concept of selling a lifestyle changed contextually at a certain point. And the teens who are the same age as the champions have always had that mode of social media advertising in front of them, right? Whereas on the flip side, a lot of us older people, it shifted as we got older. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that so many people who are like, say, mid-20s and up can sometimes fall into it because it's not, it's not the scam we grew up with. It's a different scam. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas this is the scam that they grew up with, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they still take the chance, but they, they're not stupid. They know what's happening. They're just making a decision about whether or not it's worth it. Right. I love when they're like, Kamala, I thought you said that olds don't understand social media. <laughs> and she's like, I didn't, I didn't know it could be a super villain power, okay? And I was just like, oh my God. Perfect. I mean, that was also me specifically uh, doing the nod towards the fact that older, I say older, but like I really mean older compared to the champions. So like around our ages, still have in their head that the nonsense on the internet by companies is maintained by social media interns and not like an entire marketing campaign and strategy that's designed by grown-ass adults. They may sometimes use the face of teenagers to sell it, but like that's what they do, <laughs> you know, like kind of the the whole incorrect persistent idea we have that it comes from interns instead of people who have literally studied for like their adult lives how to manipulate social media is really interesting to me. Yeah, I, I think there's also this whole meta layer in the champion's narrative about, about social media, about technology, about the ways we engage with it and the ways that it, it controls us. And how that fits generationally is really cool to read and think about. Like, I love thinking about, like, where am I engaging with social media in a way that is, like, good for me? And where is it, it controlling me? And how do I know when it's which, you know? Like, it's, it, this is a great, great comic. I, I really love Champions. Um, I want to talk uh, King in Black, Captain America. Because, so for listeners who don't know, King in Black is the big event that is, I can't remember his name, someone scary, the god of the symbiotes coming to Earth. Null, that's yeah. right. No. Null comes to Earth. And I was like, it starts with a K, but I can't think of how to say it. The silent K will throw you off. Exactly. Because you're like forming the word in your brain and you can see it, but also your brain is like, yes. that doesn't make sense. Canull? Canull's not a word. Uh, so yeah, Null is and, and has like infected a bunch of the big name superheroes. In the comic you're writing, or wrote, uh, Cap has come out of being infected by that, or has he? And it is just such a beautiful, I, I think it is absolutely stunning. The art is incredible. You know, when we go to negative space versus when it's in full color, that balance is just, oh, so powerful for getting this across. But what, what jumped out at me that feels like a Danny Lore thing 
and I, I'm not sure I know how to name it, but what jumped out at me here was how balanced and vulnerable the narrative portion was about, like, Captain America's internal narrative, even when he didn't know if it was him or Null. And he really doubts himself. And it felt so cool to watch Cap go through that self-doubt after he's, as he talks about in the comic, he's been used so many times to hurt people. And his his face, the face we've come to trust, the symbol we trust, right, in the world of the comic, those symbols are used to then infiltrate and hurt people. And so he's grappling with, like, should I even be here? Like, what does it mean for this to happen? Also, like, what am I going to do? Like, not be here? And I just thought it was so beautiful and, and vulnerable. And everything that I really love about Cap is in this comic. And, and I'm just so curious, like, how did you come up with the narrative? What did you really want to explore in it? And God damn it, what is this Danny Lore way? What are you doing? It's so amazing. Man, um, that means a lot. And thank you. Um, and you can't see it, but I'm blushing now. Mm. I think for me at a really young age, I came to the decision that not being scared isn't bravery. Um, and that's something I try to tackle a lot, especially in the context of characters that can be stolen as representation of toxic masculinity um, when that is not their core point. And that is one of the things that I feel about Steve really deeply is that all of his best stories have been about him being very empathetic, him being very passionate emotionally. And it goes with that, that he is going to be vulnerable emotionally in ways. And he is very very careful, right, about how he's being used and how he's being manipulated because he's very scared of that. He's very scared of his voice being used for dark ends and not just about possession, but just the ways that people use what he represents, right? And so in a way, this is a, a very meta tale, right? It is a tale about, about the conversation of if a character has been used to represent terrible things by subsets of terrible people is retirement of the character necessary. And I would argue that that is not always the case. And that's part of the meta level of story that I wanted to tell. That sometimes, sure, it is, but other times that is just letting really terrible people win, right? That becoming a bystander doesn't necessarily, or like stepping back, if you need to be a shield, isn't necessarily the right thing to do, right? And that's like the very nerdy meta story that I wanted to tell kind of about superheroes in general, because I think especially in the past few years, we've been reckoning with that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes the answer is to be like, screw you. We know what this character is meant to represent, who, who they are meant to be. And you will pry that from my hands on like, the social justice battlefield to be <laughs> to be quite blunt and then on a personal level about Steve he goes through so much and is so passionate and i think that it is so important to hear the vulnerabilities and fears of a superhero that i think that that makes what they do so much more impactful and so powerful because you can be a good person and it still be hard right mm. You see this conversation a lot, and I think that 
sometimes the conversations about good guys and protagonists gets muddled because people, when people say that like, oh, this character is boring, right? Sometimes what it really means is that they don't understand that it can be a really a real struggle to consistently through trauma and stress and exhaustion, keep making good choices, even if you're a good person, right? Because not every good decision is an obvious one, right? Mm. It makes sense that Steve is like, well, if they can possess me and this causes this much struggle, maybe I, sh I should stop fighting, right? Like, it makes sense that he would think that. But that's also because he keeps putting all that weight on himself because he sees himself as that hero that we put him on the pedestal to be. And that old school hero keeps it all inside, right? Yeah. And he wants to be that eternally strong bastion of superhero-dom, right? But he's always been better for the people who are around him. And it's like this cycle of positive pride and loyalty and kindness to each other that like makes Steve and his friends great. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing that in the story, what helps Steve turn around a true spiral. I mean, he is spiraling. Like, he's seeing things. He is freaking out. It's like his sweet little boyfriends being like, hey, bro, you don't seem great. And also, it's not your job to carry the weight of the world. And, you know, we love you. And I love them. They're like one of my favorite little throubles. That was one of the first things I asked was if I could use all three of them when presented oh. because one, I try to approach every project, even one shots, even like the Wonder Woman Zatanna, which is why like you see like certain moments that you see in all my stories as if my career is going to end tomorrow. So I'm just going to throw everything that I can throw in there. That works. And I was like, I want a chance to write the caps together because they understand the commitment to the shield and obviously Bucky with mind control and having to move forward and Sam understanding the shield the way he does, that I think that that is a very particular conversation that both only those three can have and Steve is incredibly lucky to have two people that can have that conversation with him that he trusts. Plus, I also then asked if I could set Sam's wings on fire, which was incredibly crucial to me at the start of doing this. <laughs> I emailed them. I was like, can I set his wings on fire? I promise you it will go so badly. He'll never do it again. <laughs> I love that that was... First thing I have to do is have the three of them together so they deeply understand each other and are connected. The second thing I need to do is set some wings on fire. Yeah, I literally was like, <laughs> I have an idea and I want to do it in the specific way that like explains why he just doesn't have flaming wings all the time. Because flaming wings are cool. And if you're going to be cool enough to have metal wings, why not have fire wings? Why? Because it can go terribly. <laughs> it can go so bad. <laughs> also, like, at the same time, Rosenberg had, I think, just finished his, like, free fall stuff when I was working on that. And I was like, I want you to know, in my head... The reason why it was Clint's idea was because of you, because that's your Clint, would suggest a dumb idea like the fire wings. <laughs> <laughs> we love when Clint gets blamed for things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Feels right. Also, because like, let's be real. Bucky would think it was cool, but would never suggest it. Clint would think it's <laughs> the dumbest idea in the world. And so he suggests it. 
So that was just my little nod to uh, him. So beautiful. (laughs) And what about Transformers? Because that's a dream job. We got to talk to you about James Bond uh, last time you were on. And Transformers is kind of like that, right? As being just a property that's been around forever. And a lot of people have worked on it, but it still has so much room to do new things. And yeah, what's it like working on Transformers? It is so wild. Like, I don't know. So it's very funny because, you know, I was a huge Transformers fan growing up. Um, and and I worked in a comic shop for a decade, but for most of that, I, I was not reading Transformers comics. I had an old roommate, actually the roommate who brought me back into comics with, uh, actually handed me Captain America 600 and Winter Soldier. Um, so I have told Shelly this many times, but she's like, the reason I'm into so many of the properties that I get to write now is because of like literally the year I spent living with her. And she's a huge Transformers fan. And I also had a manager and she also was a huge Transformers fan. And forever they were like, trust me, Danny, this is immensely your shit. And I was like, okay. Uh, But then I finally caved one day and was like, all right, I'm going to ask both of you what to read. And they both told me last stand of the records. And I was like, well, if you're both recommending this, I'm going to do it. And I opened the book and I fell in love from the first page. Just, I, I genuinely to this day think that last stand of the records is a virtually perfect comic story. And then I got into the phase two IDW comics. And it's hard to explain to people who have not picked up those books how I think that that's some of the best comics that have been produced long term. They are funny. They even have some horror elements in in a couple of issues. Complex, goofy storytelling, but also deeply sincere stories about what happens after the war. You know, it it throws you into what about trying to run Cybertron after thousands and thousands of years at war? How can peace work? How do these characters deal with the traumas that happened because of the war? What about all, all the different Transformers who were neither Autobots or Decepticons, right? And how even if they're not like individual characters, the fact that both of them are like well, maybe they both suck just in different ways was like such a huge part of the story. And that kind of story about that kind of PTSD on like what really is a national level is is stuff that I I just kind of absorb, right? Like, so it ended up being very, very me comics. And then I was actually working on next week, tomorrow, tomorrow's uh, Star Wars short that comes out for Star Wars Adventures. When I got introduced to my editors for Transformers and they were just like, hey, see that you like Transformers. You seem to have been tweeting about them and like you want to do like a shattered glass universe. And I was like, yes, like literally I got the email and pretty much immediately responded with hell fucking yeah. And then on top of that, like I remember going, cool, I know that that canon, you know, like, is kind of all over the place, you know, because it's alternate dimension, you know, like, over a long stretch of time. But they really were just like, sandbox, have fun. I spent so long being like, I love Transformers, but I would be really scared to write them because even thinking about how they move and why they move is different than writing human characters, right? Like, it's even different from writing Android characters. Um, And I spent a lot of time thinking that I wouldn't be able to do that. 
but then suddenly the the opportunity was actually on the table. And I think that night I was like, I know what I want the world to be. And in less than 72 hours, I think we had the initially approved five issue uh, breakdown. I don't know. I don't think I've ever come up with anything that quickly in my life. But it was just <laughs> that kind of opportunity with just the right level of creativity, you know, but also like interesting limitations as well, right? Because these are known characters. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I come from a very fanfic background. AUs are, are my shit. Yeah, same here. For me, what's really fun about alternate universes is not just difficult, not different circumstances, but making very conscious decisions about what I think is essential to a character and what I think is crucially essential. And so that's what I'm going to change, you know? So pretty obvious, like from like the early descriptions of it, right? But like Starscream, for example, I was like, cool. What if you change nothing except that Starscream is an intensely loyal individual, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, it's still his voice, you know? Like I made sure when I, when I read any of his lines in my head that it could be that old school animated voice and he's gonna, you know, talk shit and be like a cocky little bastard and incredibly overdramatic all the time. Oh my God. But he is loyal to people and causes and what that means, you know, like, and making sure not to just change all of a character, but like pinpoint parts of them that matter and then see what happens when you shift them. Mm, I love it so much. I also want to talk about the new comic, the comic that was just introduced today, because this is Werewolf City, and I feel like there's no conversation with you that I have ever that doesn't have werewolves in it at some point. It's the best conversations to have. I think so, too. I really enjoy it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we love werewolves. Team werewolves. They are my favorite. I am also happy to say, though, that it is not just werewolves in this either. Um, Go on. (laughs) It is very intentional that this is like a fully mashed up world where we do have uh, Sin, who is a werewolf who was cursed to have her shifting taken away from her. We also, the second protagonist, they are a non-binary wizard by the name of Zack Zero, who has stolen something very important and immediately gets... Sin wrapped up in it because Sin is bigger and Zach wants a shield. But I have other types of supernatural creatures and people in it uh, from various levels of already existing. Um, like I think we've got, in the first issue alone, we've got wizards, we've got a vampire, we've got people who have no magic at all um, and are entirely kind of sci-fi tech-based. In the sample uh, preview pages, you can see that Sin suplexes a banshee who is doing a lot of screaming, hence the earbuds to protect her, her ears. But I, I wanted to do something really just as out there as my favorite media. Like I'm a big Yakuza fan, uh, GTA, uh, a lot of the wild sci-fi that is coming out of prose right now. Um, and I was just like, I want to do something that feels as wild and out there as all the things that I really love, you know? Queen of Bad Dreams, uh, my first book with Vault, I love. And it was very intentional that there were very clear lines of who's good and who's bad in it. 
One of the first things I said to Adrian is that I wanted to do a story where rather than everyone being good or bad, I was like, I want a scale of messy to evil. <laughs> where it's a, you know, that noir world of people trying to just survive and some of them aren't bad. They're just complete disaster pieces. And then there are other people who are really bad. Just because I hadn't done so much of that yet in comics, especially at the time I had, we'd started talking about this before I even got to do the John piece. But even that is kind of an exception to, I think, a lot of my work where like, I've got like champions and I've got transformers where, you know, there are the Autobots and the Decepticons. And I was like, I wanted a story that has factions, but the factions don't necessarily mean that anyone's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of nuance and complexity, I think, is um, something that I just see in your works all of the time. But I'm extra excited for this one. It's because she's big. You can just say it. It's it's because she's big. <laughs> that was also really important to me. Mm -hmm. I was just like, look, my concept for this character is... In terms of energy and, and look, she's like Shayna Baszler from WWE meets uh, mm -hmm. Dasha Polanco. And then like personality, she's Elliot Spencer. <laughs> that was what I wanted. Oh, yeah. And, I cannot wait. <laughs> uh, it was really fun to make. Right before we started recording, we, I was looking at some of the pages and just being like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, this looks gorgeous. Absolutely Gio gorgeous. is so amazing. Like, just does such beautiful art and is also really really good at doing those brutal like combat moments too right like that suplex looks as good as like there's some later scenes where like you just really get to see different layers of emotion with sin right mm -hmm. and geo does it all so beautifully plus just like on a character design level like mm -hmm. it was so hard to just pick certain styles, right? Because they were all so good. <laughs> there, I think there was literally a character that uh, we haven't shown yet, but is like uh, one of the big antagonists, where I think we came to the conclusion that they were all so good that we're like, this is the character that gets like the exception, that that like, <laughs> if the scene calls for it, is just going to be wearing a bunch of different clothes, you know? Oh yeah, like the Harley Quinn, right? Where it's just like, this person just shows up in whatever. Just, you know, is wearing... That kind of just like the energy in the fact that she's always got like something different going on, except for these couple of iconic things mm -hmm. worked really well for that. But like every design was just so on point. I can't wait to show uh, more of them. Oh, that's so amazing. I'm so excited for this. This is going to be really fun. I can't wait to read it. podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.